If you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to the book of Acts and Acts chapter 8. Uh, it is uh, my joy to be able to open up God's Word together. And I'm told that you've been doing a series in Ezra and Nehemiah, is that correct? And as you've worked through those, those books in the Old Testament, um, there's been a deeper sense of uh, mission and wanting to fulfill the Great Commission that I think the Lord is doing a work here among you all, and that's super-duper exciting. And so Jeremy has asked me to uh, open up God's Word to encourage you in that, to encourage you in the mission that God has called us to as Christians, and I want to do that from Acts chapter 8, and we'll read there in a second. But before we read, let me start with this. You you may not know this, but it is 5,600 miles as the crow flies from Jerusalem to this school. I did it on Google Maps, so I have it with good authority. It's 5,600 miles from Jerusalem to Souderton, Pennsylvania. And the question that I have is, how on earth did the gospel get from there to here? You know, when you think about the geographical distance, when you think about the, the those many miles, when you think about the chronological distance, you know, there has been 20 centuries that have elapsed since the day of Jesus and his apostles. So there's 5,600 miles, 20 centuries, and then there's all the ling- linguistic distance as well, where the, the Bible and the gospel had to come from Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek into modern day English and then be butchered into American. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we see there's, there's a number of challenges. How did the gospel get from there to here with all of those barriers? Now, in 1761, an Englishman who was a poor shoemaker by the name of William Carey, he was born and he, he grew up in the UK and he was converted at the age of 18 and he began to preach the gospel uh, and teach the Bible in various small Baptist churches throughout England. And this chap, William Carey, was, uh, he was uh, an avid reader and one of the books that he read was Captain Cook's Voyages. Captain Cook was, I think, uh, someone who discovered Australia. And as he was reading these books about uh, foreign travel, he began to uh, develop a real interest in foreign lands and mission to foreign countries. And as he studied the Bible, he began to be convinced that uh, one of the key themes of the scriptures and one of the key um, uh, responsibilities of the church is to see the gospel go forward to other places, whether locally or globally. But he had a particular heart for foreign missions. And uh, uh, one biographer of William Carey describes a, a situation that he was in where he was in a kind of a, a minister's meeting with other Baptist ministers, sharing his ideas about how he wanted to take the gospel overseas. Uh, and one pastor, one member of the group, an older gentleman, just told him to, he, he, he said these words, this is recorded, he said, young man, sit down. If God wants to reach those nations and those people, if he wants to convert the heathens, he will do it without you or me helping him. William Carey's like, oh, all right. That wasn't what I expected. And then as he discussed the idea with his father, his father thought he was mad. But William Carey had this 
burning ambition to see the gospel go forward in other nations. And so he went to India as a missionary and he served there for 40 years and he was responsible for translating um, the Bible into at least 30, 36 different languages. He uh, labored in India to abolish uh, horrible practices of uh, where they would burn humans in sacrifices and infanticide. And he was able to bring some of his knowledge of agriculture from England and take it so that it could promote agricultural improvements in the lives of Indians in rural India. He is often called the father of modern missions. And in a sermon that he preached before he left England to go to India, he uttered these, perhaps you've heard them before, they're they're quite famous words. He said, we should expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. We should expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. So how did the gospel get from Israel and Jerusalem to Souderton? And how is it going to go from here to there, wherever there might be. It might be the next town, it might be the next state, it might be the next country, it might be the next continent. But how are we as Christians going to get the gospel from here to there? Now, William Carey believed in two uh, fundamental truths. He believed that God is sovereign over evangelism, and he also believed that God's people should be obedient to the commands that God gives us in his word. And William Carey's story kind of lines up with another story that we find in Acts chapter 8 this morning, a story that teaches us something vital about how the gospel goes from here to there. So I want to read it together in a second, but just before we do that, let me just give you the briefest one-minute synopsis of, of Acts up until now so that we can set it in the right context. Okay, so the key to understanding the book of Acts is, I think, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus, before he's ascended into heaven, tells his disciples, listen, wait here and pray until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then when the Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then Acts kind of unpacks in different different sections of the book how the gospel moves from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So chapters 1 to 6 are the work that God is doing through the spirit-empowered people of his church to see the gospel go into Jerusalem. And then at the Acts chapter 7, you meet this man Stephen, who is a leader in the church, and he gets martyred for his faith. And you think, oh my, is this the end of the gospel witness? Because now people are being killed for it. But Acts chapter 8 then starts this kind of second section where great persecution strikes the church. And there's a man called Saul who is going around and he's imprisoning Christians and he's overseeing their executions to try and stop the gospel going forward. And the Christians end up scattering from Jerusalem into other parts of the country. They start to be spread out geographically. They go from here to there. And so we're going to read... Uh, Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40, where we read about one particular man who was in Jerusalem, who was part and experiencing the persecution that was happening there, but was scattered. And as he was scattered, 
he scattered the seed of the gospel. And what we find is that wherever the gospel goes out, God brings people in. So let's read together about this chap called Philip, who was a spirit-filled leader and an evangelist in the early church. And this is what God's word says about him. This is Acts chapter 8, verses 26. I'm going to read right through to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And so he rose and he went and there was an Ethiopian, a a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasures. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and he was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scriptures, or with with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Astos, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that we're together. We thank you that we can study this now. We pray that you'd send your spirit to help us open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts, we pray that we might receive your word, that it might go down deep into our hearts and bear much fruit for you and your glory as we seek to live out the mission that you've called us to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So how does the gospel go from here to there? Okay, one of the things that we're going to learn, or the thing, the kind of main idea of the passage and the story from Acts chapter 8 is this, that God sovereignly orchestrates and empowers his followers to fulfill his mission of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. So God sovereignly orchestrates and God sovereignly empowers his followers, people like you and me, to share the gospel So that we might fulfill his mission of seeing the gospel go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we're going to just explore that under three headings. Uh, We're going to see God is sovereign over his mission. God 
is powerful to accomplish his mission and God invites us to join him in his mission. And my prayer has been and and will continue to be that one of the direct consequences of us reading the book of Acts together this morning and hearing what God has to say to us is that all of us, the, the kind of the passion that we have for mission would be either ignited or reignited or fanned into flame so that we might be faithful followers of Jesus in making him known. So let's begin with the first one. God is sovereign over his mission. If we'd have backed up to chapter uh, 8 verses 1 to 3, we would have seen how God is sovereignly orchestrating uh, his sovereign plan of salvation and how he's distributing and dispersing his people uh, to where they need to be. And one of the ways that he does this is through persecution. So there arises in Jerusalem a great persecution against the church led by this man Saul who was breathing out murderous threats against the Christians. But God is over those things and orchestrating these things to see his people go from Jerusalem into other places. And then we read in verse 26 that God is using supernatural means to direct Philip in where he wants him to go. Uh, now, between the beginning of Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and where we began our reading in verse 26, we find Philip in uh, the area of Samaria, which is just north of Jerusalem. And he is experiencing great success as he preaches the gospel in this place. He's preaching, people are responding, people are getting saved, the Holy Spirit is moving powerfully. There's a big, you know, it's, I mean, it's like a Billy Graham crusade that's going on. And people are responding, there's faith, there's joy, there's repentance, there's believing. Uh, So much so, he's causing quite a stir that Peter and John decide that they need to go and check this out. They're apostles, they walk with Jesus. They go and they validate and they verify uh, Philip's ministry. And And it's just an incredible testimony of the grace of God moving in his life and the power of the gospel to bring people to salvation. And then God surprisingly snatches Philip out of that kind of successful situation and yanks him out of there and tells him to go to a dusty road in the middle of nowhere because that's where he wants him to be. And he uses an angel to do that in verse 26. And so he says, listen, there's a, there's an old dusty road and you should think more like a, you know, a dirt track through the desert of Arizona rather than I-95. You know, and so he says, go out to this road. It's the, it's the road that would have taken you to the old Philistine country. So it's not really a very desirable route. And so Philip gets up and he goes and he probably, he jumps on a horse or he walks, uh, and he goes out into the desert. Because that's where God has told him to go. He doesn't know what to expect, but he wants to be faithful. And then as he makes his way out to this road, we're told in verse 29 that the Spirit then says, hey, look, there's going to be a chariot coming down this road. Now, that would have been unusual because this is a desert road. And you would have, you know, if you'd have gone out on that road, there was a good chance that you would probably not bump into anybody. You would not meet anybody either going the way that you were going or coming in the other direction. You could probably travel for hours, maybe days without seeing anybody. But God tells Philip, hey, there's going to be a chariot and you need to run and you need to catch up with the chariot because I've got someone for you to meet there. 
So Philip sees this chariot. He gets up from where he is. He's, and he starts to run and he meet, gets to this chariot. And what we see is that God is sovereignly orchestrating everything to get Philip to the place that he needs him to be. So that Philip would be the right man in the right place at the right time. And as he runs to the chariot, he encounters an African man. He meets this guy who is returning, we're told, from Jerusalem. And God sovereignly crosses their paths in the middle of the desert, in the most unlikely of places. And so you could just kind of imagine what's going on in Philip's mind. He was like, okay, so I was in Samaria and it was a successful mission and people were getting saved and I, I thought that that was going to continue. Uh, but now here I am in the dust and the dirt and the heat of the desert and I don't know what to expect. And then there's this Ethiopian man who is coming back from Jerusalem and how he's probably, you know, maybe he's been, you know, he, he, he's been on vacation perhaps. He's, he's been there to worship, but now he's going back to his job, you know, and he's the queen's treasurer. And so he's probably thinking about, oh golly, Monday morning is coming and I've got to return to work and, you know, all of those things that go through our minds after a vacation. And so they both have their ideas and their plans of what they're supposed to be doing. And yet we find God has other plans. God has better plans. God has eternal plans that he is sovereignly outworking. And it's just a small reminder that in the mission that we are called to, that we're not the main player. That in the mission that we're called to, and, and, and you see this very clearly in the book of Acts, despite all the supporting cast, whether it's Peter, James, John, Stephen, Philip, Saul, who later becomes Paul. You know, all of these kind of supposed main characters in the narrative, they're actually, they're not the main character. Because Acts is all about someone else. It's all about Jesus and the work that he continues to do in and through his spirit-empowered people. He's the major player. He's the star of the show. He's the director. He's the supplier of power and resources. He's the one who is in control of all things, orchestrating all things, moving the different parts to where they need to be so that his plan of salvation can be accomplished. And at this moment, he brings together two unlikely individuals in a divine appointment so that one could proclaim the gospel and one could get saved. So how does the gospel get from there to here? And how does it get from here to there? Well, the first answer is God's sovereign working. He's he's sovereignly at work to get us from there to here. And from here to there. So let me ask you a question. How might God be at work using you to be a Philip in the life of someone else? Of all of the places that you're in, of all of the people that you know, of all of the connections that you have in your life right now, what surprising work might God be trying to orchestrate through you to give someone an opportunity to hear the gospel and be saved? You know, maybe it's, maybe it's something you haven't really like connected the dots with yet. Maybe it's an old family friend that you've just suddenly reconnected with over Facebook or social media. Or maybe it was a, you know, you crossed paths with someone at an old high school reunion. Or maybe a new neighbor has moved in across the street from your house. 
Where might God be at work? Putting you to be the right person in the right place at the right time for someone else. Oswald Chambers was a Scottish Baptist minister in the Victorian era. And he said this, he said, God is the great engineer. He creates circumstances and brings them about in moments of our lives so that we might have divine appointments. Do you believe that? Do you have the eyes of faith to see that God has put you in the place that you are for his purposes? To be the right person in the right place at the right time so that someone might have the opportunity to hear the gospel and be saved. In his good and sovereign providence, God has each of us in the exact place that he wants us to be right now so that we might participate in his mission. How does the gospel go from here to there? Well, it goes as the gospel goes out, God brings people in and he does it sovereignly. He's at work behind the scenes. But not is it only is he sovereign over his mission. Number two, God is powerful to accomplish his mission. God is powerful to accomplish his mission. So not only is he sovereignly orchestrating all the things that happen behind the scenes, but he is also the greatest evangelist in the whole world. He is at work to save people. He is powerful to bring people from death to life, from darkness to light. He did it for us. And he hasn't stopped yet. He's not finished. Nothing can thwart his plan and his mission is unstoppable. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. It's not really a prediction. It's more a promise. You will. And you get a hint of that fulfillment in this story. So this African man, verse 27, we meet an Ethiopian. Uh, He's riding in this chariot and we're told he's a high-ranked government official he's a he's a powerful player in Ethiopia he is the treasurer for Queen Candice and that's probably refers less to a specific queen and more he's like the treasurer of the of the dynasty okay that's kind of how scholars understand it and he is returning from Jerusalem and he is described as a god-fearer He'd gone up to Jerusalem to, to worship God. He'd, he'd had an interest in the God of Israel. He was open-hearted and open-minded to the possibility of Israel's God being the one true God. Maybe he had heard stories about other African nations like Egypt that this God had conquered and freed his people from. Something had happened that had got his attention. And so he's a noble man on a noble quest. But he's an Ethiopian. He's from the edge of the known world. He's from, he's an outlier, if you like. And he's a Gentile. And so in the eyes of the Jews, he's unwelcome. He's unclean. He's unworthy to draw near to their God. Because he's not a Jew. The Gentiles were excluded. But that's not all. We also read that he is a eunuch. He had been, he'd experienced the mutilation of the flesh. I'll just put it like that. And Deuteronomy 23, Moses spoke, you know, 
revealed the law that where it says, you know, eunuchs were permanently excluded from worshipping God at the temple. So this guy in, in Acts chapter 8, this Ethiopian eunuch, although he's a nobleman, although he's a high-ranking and powerful government official in his uh, country, he is a double outsider. He's a Gentile and he's a eunuch. That means that he is geographically and physically and therefore spiritually as far away from God as you could imagine someone to be. There are so many barriers between this man and God. Ethnically, racially, socially, religious, historic. There's so many barriers between this guy and God. And yet God is sovereignly at work in his life. He's drawing him to himself. He's softening his heart. He's getting him to the right place to be at the right, at the right time to read them to meet the right person as well. And we learn in verse chap- in verse 30 that this guy has his own private scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now that's probably just a measure of the man's wealth, but also of his enthusiasm to learn more about Israel's God. And it just so happens that as Philip kind of runs after the chariot and kind of looks in and says, hey, how are you doing? He hears this guy reading Isaiah chapter 53. And he's gets to this strange passage about a suffering servant. About one who is pictured as a, as a sheep to be slaughtered. One who is experiencing great humiliation and injustice that is ultimately going to result in him having his life taken away from him. And the Ethiopian says to, the, to Philip, you know, who's he talking about? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about someone else? I just don't understand. And so in verse 35, Philip begins to explain the meaning of the passage that he's reading. And he takes him from there to the truth about Jesus and begins to explain the gospel to him. He says, this, this man who's pictured as a, as a sheep to be slaughtered, yes, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's, a, he's the suffering servant. He's, the, he's the, the Messiah. He's God's anointed one who has stepped down from the glories of heaven and taken on flesh and entered into the mess of our world as the God-man to come and to seek and save the lost. And he is one who is a servant of all and who will lay down his life unto death and he will be obedient to death, even to death on a cross. And in dying on that cross, he will bear the sins of his people and he will rise again to new life. And in that resurrection, there will be power to forgive sins and to grant new life, eternal life for all who will trust in him. And so he begins to share the gospel. He begins to explain from these scriptures the good news about Jesus. Now just imagine with me a little bit. This isn't in the text, but let's just use our imaginations. I, I can imagine that the Ethiopian eunuch, he hears these words, but then he says to Philip something like, Listen man, I, I'm not from Jerusalem, I'm not a Jewish I went up to visit, I I just got back there, but I wasn't welcome, I couldn't get into the temple, they wouldn't let me anywhere near this guard that you're talking about. I'm from a kingdom far, far away, I'm not part of God's chosen people, besides that I'm a eunuch, and that means bad things, I can't draw near to God, I'm excluded. So all this stuff about Jesus, it sounds wonderful, 
but that ain't for me. And then I imagine Philip saying to him, listen, man, why don't you just scroll back up a bit? You know, we're in Isaiah 53 right now, but maybe just scroll back up to Isaiah chapter 11 because God wants to encourage you with something. Maybe then as they unwind the scroll, they get to Isaiah chapter 11 and, the, and, the, and Isaiah says these words. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover the remnants of his people from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush, which is Ethiopia, and from Elam and Shinar and Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea. And then I imagine Philip saying to him, listen, do you see that God is... God has promised here in Isaiah that he would save people from Ethiopia. That's you. And then maybe Philip says, hey, why don't, scroll forward a bit now. Scroll forward to Isaiah chapter 56 because God's got something else he wants to encourage you with. And so maybe the, the eunuch scrolls through and they get to Isaiah 56 and they read together these words. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and give you a name that is better than sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I imagine Philip turning to the eunuch and saying, see that? See what it says here? It says, if you believe in Jesus and you repent of your sins and you come to him in faith, you can be, experience a relationship with him that's even better than being a son or a daughter. You'll have an everlasting name. You might be cut off now, but you will never be cut off if you come to Jesus. Now, I don't know whether that's what happened. I like to think that that might be the case. But it was certainly good news that the Ethiopian heard. Good news that meant that he got down from the chariot in verse 39 as they passed by some water and say, listen, I believe, I repent, let me be baptized. And what we see is that ordinary Samaritans and noble Ethiopians and regular Pennsylvanians Whether you be rich or poor or somewhere in between, whether you have a religious background, an atheistic background, a pagan background, whether you are from a successful life or whether you're just plodding along or whether you are a miserable failure, God has power to save anybody. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know where you align yourself with Jesus at the moment. Maybe you've heard about him and you're not sure about the claims that he makes. Maybe you don't really have any knowledge of him. But maybe you came in this morning and you're at the the end of yourself, but you have concluded that perhaps Christianity just simply isn't for people like you. The Ethiopian story this morning reminds us that there is no one who is beyond the need of God's grace and there is no one who is beyond the reach of God's grace. There's no barrier that God cannot overcome to save people. The gospel is open to everyone because God is powerful to accomplish his mission. And maybe after all of this discussion with the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip just said to him, listen, simply listen, go to Isaiah chapter 55. 
And here God's invitation where God extends this, these words. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, well, you can still come and buy and eat. And that's the invitation that is extended to each and every single one of us and to the people that God puts in our path. And the Ethiopian responds in faith and he is baptized and he goes away rejoicing. If you're here this morning and you haven't staked your whole life on Jesus, you can experience that this morning. Talk to the person who brought you. Talk to someone you've seen on the stage. Come and find out more about the good news of Jesus because you can leave here this morning rejoicing as well. Because the invitation of the gospel that you can have your sins forgiven and your life transformed is real and true and available this morning. Now for those of us who are uh, part of the church, we put our faith in Jesus, perhaps let me just pose this question to you as you think about how to apply this. As you think about the place that God has you sovereignly, that he's positioned you in, is there anybody that you think is, is too far gone? to hear the gospel and to respond? Are there barriers that we put up in our lives that say, oh, you know what? Yeah, ooh, I like Rob, but, ooh, you know, I don't don't know whether Jesus is for him. Perhaps out of arrogance, perhaps out of ignorance, we've written someone off. Maybe it's the co-worker who identifies with the LGBTQ community. Maybe it's that antagonistic, atheistic neighbor who hates Christians and makes that very clear to you. Maybe it's an angry family member with whom you just can't agree on anything. You know, and they're politically outspoken and you're saying, oh my goodness, Jesus is just never going to be able to reach them. Acts chapter 8 makes us rethink those things. Because God is able to save the outliers and the outsiders and the outcasts. He's able to save the unlikely. He's able to save the unlovely and the unloved and the unlovable. In fact, he delights to do it. And he is powerful to accomplish his mission of saving sinners from death and hell. In fact, there's a text in the in Romans chapter 1 that was written by the most unlikely individual. You know, if you go back to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, you meet a guy called Saul who is breathing out murderous threats against the church. He is ravaging the church. He's entering house to house, dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. And he is over, he oversaw the execution and the martyrdom of Stephen. And he was... He was right there and he approved of his execution. And yet God, in his mercy, broke in on this guy's life and transformed him so that he would write these words in Romans chapter 1 verse 6. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. There is no one Beyond the reach of God's grace. Not even Saul. Like a religious terrorist. Let's call him what he was. God breaks in on his heart. Says, you're mine. You're forgiven. 
And this guy says, there is power in the gospel for salvation to everyone who believes. So how does the gospel get from here to there? Well, God orchestrates it sovereignly, but he also is powerful to bring it about, to accomplish his mission. And then third and finally, God invites us to join in his mission. You know, if you go back to chapter 6 where uh, of Acts, where Philip is first introduced, he's a regular guy in the church. He's just being faithful. He's not a, a big shot. He's not an apostle. He's just a normal guy who loves the gospel. He loves Jesus. He's been transformed by the gospel himself. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he is just seeking to be faithful. And he is a guy who just couldn't stop telling people about Jesus. And Philip is an example of what scattered Christians in Acts went about doing as they were scattered geographically. They scattered the seed of the gospel everywhere they went. They were sharing the truth of Jesus with others. He was a regular guy. He's a normal guy. He didn't have an MDiv from seminary. He didn't have a deep knowledge of apologetics. He just knew Jesus and he loved Jesus and he knew that Jesus loved others. And he wanted to make him known to others. And that's encouraging to me. I don't have a degree from seminary. I don't have a deep knowledge of apologetics. Some people in England would argue that I can't even speak English properly. Although I think I can. I'm just a regular guy. I'm sure we would all consider ourselves ordinary, regular people. This encourages me. Because I don't have to be a big shot or an apostle. I don't have to be Billy Graham. I just have to be faithful. Faithful to share the gospel with those that God crosses my path with. Look at verse 31. Philip, in verse 30, Philip runs to the Ethiopian eunuch. He, heard, he hears him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he says, do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand? The Ethiopian says, no. How can I understand unless someone guides me? So Philip gets up and sits with him and begins to explain. I love that. That's so simple. Hey, do you, do you understand? Can I share something with you? He just is, it's very normal. It's very normal conversation. How can someone understand unless someone guides me? How does the gospel get from here to there? We just have to be people who know the gospel, who love the gospel, who are willing to speak out what we know about the gospel to others. We go and we speak. In Romans chapter 10, Paul, again, same guy who wrote Romans 1, same guy from Acts 8. He says this in Romans 10, verse 11. The scripture says, everyone who believes in him, in Jesus, will not be put to shame. And there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
God invites every single one of us into the mission. He invites us to go, to get up on our feet and go. How are they going to understand unless someone goes? How are they going to hear unless someone speaks? God invites us to join him in his mission. Whether we be in Samaria with lots of people around us, whether we be on a dusty road with just one-to-one interactions, God calls us to proclaim the gospel, to hold it up as light in the darkness, to hold it up as hope for the hopeless, to hold it up as power for salvation for all who would call on the name of Jesus. But here's the important thing. We speak, God saves. Here's what J.I. Packer says. While we must remember that it is our responsibility to proclaim salvation, we must never forget that it is God who saves It is God who brings men and women under the sound of the gospel. And it is God who brings them to faith in Christ. Our evangelistic work is the instrument that he uses for this purpose. But the power that saves is not in the instrument. It's in the hand of the one who uses the instrument. We must never forget that. You know, we have a saxophone player here, great saxophone player. The power is not in the instrument. I could pick it up and show you that. It's in the one who plays. We're called and invited to join the mission, and that is a privilege. But let us never forget, God is the one who is powerful to save. How does the gospel go from here to there? Well, it goes out through God's sovereignly orchestrated means of empowering and sending his people out to share the gospel. And as the gospel goes out, God brings people in. And let us, with renewed faith and confidence this morning, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your words to us. And we thank you that you have called us to a glorious mission and a glorious hope of making known Jesus Christ in our lost and dying world. Help us to remember that it is not our way of speaking the gospel, not our method of illustrating the gospel which wins souls, but it is the gospel itself that does the work of in the hands of the Holy Spirit. But help us to be faithful, we pray. Let us attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. And may your gospel go from here to there, from Souderton to Pennsylvania to the Northeast region, to the USA, to North America, and to the world. That people might know Jesus and love Jesus and live for his glory alone. We ask these things in his name.